you have to know that it's a privilege for me to be here and to open the Word of God with you. But I also always have this thing in the back of my head whenever I am asked to speak somewhere. And I, I have been asked to several places, so I can't avoid this that happens often when I arrive. And then as I, I remember when I first got into the ministry, there was a guy that came to me and he said, listen, you're new, you're just starting out in the ministry, so let me give you this one piece of advice. I said, fine, what's that piece of advice? And he said, when you go on vacation or leave your pulpit, he said, pick the worst speaker you can find and you invite that guy. And he says, then what happens is he speaks and the people are like, whoa, I can hardly wait till our guy gets back. So that, that always hovers in the back of my mind when I come to places to share the word of God. When I was a kid growing up, I grew up in the Cleveland area, and I was coming of age and interest in basketball about the time the Cleveland Cavaliers began their time as an expansion team in the NBA. And so I grew up listening to Joe Tate. Joe Tate was the announcer. Uh, he was the one that would uh, talk about he sights, he shoots, he scores. He was the one that would say, to the line, to the lane, to the bucket. Uh, he was the one that would talk about string music when the ball would swish through the basket. Of course, the, 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 one of the greatest of all times is Marv Albert. And Marv Albert is a basketball announcer. He has since retired. But his greatness was in his tagline. Whenever someone would shoot and score, he would shout, yes, yes. That was his tagline. Who doesn't love a good yes? Who doesn't love it when you hear the yes? I'm glad you took that shot. Yes, shoot that thing. Go for it. Yes, we love the yeses. But sometimes what happens is God says no. The yeses we can handle. Yes, I want you. Yes, come and be a part of this. Yes, serve. Yes, go. Yes, you pray. Yes, the answer is yes. That's marvelous. That's wonderful. Who doesn't love to hear a good yes? But it's when God says no what do we do? How do we respond? How do we, how do we act? How do we handle that when God says no? Because as wonderful as we love to imagine ourselves to be and available to God as we want to be, there are times when God says no. Thankfully, the word of God has given us a model of how to handle it when God says no. That model is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the life of David. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three parts of the model of how to handle when God says no. Three parts to the model of God saying no. The first part is found in verses 1 through 3 in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, we have a simple request. A simple request. David says this, Now when the king David lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. The, the Lord had given David a moment of rest, and in David's moment of rest, he begins to think I want to do this for God. 
and he asks God's servant, God's spokesperson, this is what I want to do. And Nathan says, yes. Nathan is a prophet. He is one of the chronicles of, chroniclers of David's reign. He wrote about David, so very familiar with David and what he has done. In a few chapters from now, he's going to be the one that rebukes David for his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, he is the one that's later going to talk about the succession, who's going to be the next king, Nathan. He's a major part of David's life, a major part of what's happening. He also becomes associated with David in the temple, arranging some music and, and doing some things. So David is a key component in this, but the most uh, important component is he is God's spokesman, spokesman. And so when David makes the request to Nathan, it's as though he's making it to God. And so Nathan is listening and he says to David, go for it. Whatever's in your heart, go for it. You see, David was uh, in this time of rest from battle and work. He begins to imagine and the sweet smell of cedar surrounds him in his place. And then when he goes to the ark, he is surrounded by goat's hair and those smells. And he's saying that they don't match. And remember, if you think about 2 Samuel chapter 6, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, he had moved the ark into place. And so all of that is in his mind, and he's thinking, I have this wonderful palatial place. So should God. So should God. And remember, uh, the ark and the temple wasn't just about the ark and the temple. It was also about uh, the priests. It was also about the guardians of the ark. It was about the servants to the priests. There were hundreds of thousands of people involved in all that was happening when it came to the ark. And David said, we need something like that. And David is overwhelmed, overflowing with love and gratitude to God. And he says, God has done so much for me, so I'm making this simple request. Let me build you a temple so that we can place your ark in that temple, so that we can put you in this place. And Nathan says, it's a great idea. Go for it. It's a simple, sincere request. I want to build the temple. I want to build a place for you, Lord. There's no presumption. It's genuine concern for the ark. It also is a sense where if we can consolidate everybody together, together politically, that would be a marvelous thing. We have that symbol, that place. Simple request. Have you been there? Have you been there? Your heart is right, you think. Your heart is going in the direction. You want to do something for God. You want to offer up some opportunity for yourself and for the Lord to use you. And you say to God, please, I want to be that guy. I want to be that person. I want to be available to you. I want to go. Very simple request. That's part one of this model. Part two is found in the following verses. In part two, we find out about a sovereign refusal. A sovereign refusal. Now, notice what happens. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can kind of go back and forth. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 17, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7 most of the time. But let me just remind you, in 1 Chronicles 17, which is a parallel passage to this, God makes it more clear. He says in verse 4 of 1 Chronicles 17, he says to Nathan, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. In 1 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, verse 4, it says, But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus, th thus saith the Lord. And then he gives all these reasons David's not going to be the guy. 
So David makes this simple request, but then God, who is sovereign, that's the point we need to remember, refuses David's request. He says no. He says no to David. Now, we don't want to find fault with Nathan. Uh, Nathan has done nothing wrong because what he did was he heard a simple, sincere, noble request from David, and he took it to God. And in his mind, it seemed like the perfect request because David had all of the ability and the capabilities to be able to build something marvelous for the Lord. And so Nathan should not be faulted. So we're not going to find fault with Nathan, but we're going to find acceptance and peace in what God says. It is a sovereign refusal. God says no. And God said no to David. Notice what he says in verse 6 of 2 Samuel 7. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you up, the people of Israel, from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Historically, historically, that's an argument. No temple before, no temple now. So that's God's argument. No, David, because I've never had one. Uh, Then look what happens again in verse 7. He says, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Did I ever say to them, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So he has the historical argument. We've never had it. We never ne- I never needed it. And then he says, I've never asked for one. I've never asked you for this. And then in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, he's, David's told, you're, you're a man of blood. And a man of blood, a warrior like you, are, you're apt to take tokens of war and put them into my temple, and I don't want that. And so you aren't the guy. And so David is given this, you're not the guy. I, I have prayed, and God says, no. Do you know someone that when you do something or they do something, you just explain it by saying, well, that's the way they are. I remember we had a visitor to the church. We went out to lunch together, and uh, while we were eating lunch, the visitor said, well, that guy that leads the singing at the church where I was attending, he seems to be very emotional. And I said, well, that's the way he is. And then I explained what had happened in his life, how he had been redeemed and saved, and how he just can't help but weep over the, the graciousness of God. And every time he's up, and, and you know, now that you know the guy, you, you understand why he's like that. And it's like, you know people like that. They'll do something, and you'll say, well, that's just the way they are. Well, do you know God so well that when God says no to you, that you're like, well, yeah, that's, that's God. <laughs> that's God. He's the sovereign Savior, the King, the omnipotent one. And I know him, and so when he says no, I accept that. The sovereign refusal is a reminder of how much God matters. He is the one who is in charge of our lives and responsible for what we do. We sometimes have tried so hard to make God acceptable to people that we forget that he's greater than us. The, the way that God becomes acceptable to you is through Jesus Christ. And so instead of bringing God down... We need to raise up Jesus Christ who takes us into the presence of God. Uh, But David is explained. God explains it to David. There's a no. David's request is refused. 
But notice what happens in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, what God does is he reaffirms the covenant to David. Look at verse 13 of 2 Samuel 7. Verse 13, he said about David, uh, he he said about the, the kingdom, he said, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the Davidic covenant. The covenant that says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 15, he says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. He forever affirms his love for David. And there's this covenant, this this reminder of uh, what I said to Abraham. I'm now telling you, David, and we need to have this promise of blessing, of land, of descendants, all of that, David, you get that. So you're not going to get to build my temple, but I'm renewing my covenant with you. Now, I, I, I hope you stay with me, but let's hit pause on God saying no, and let's talk about the Davidic covenant for just a moment. You know the Davidic covenant is not fulfilled in Solomon. The Davidic covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. Isn't it wonderful how the Bible takes us to Jesus and makes us remember how important he is to all that we do and all that we say. Uh, It's written in Acts chapter 2. It talks about David was promised and the crucified, risen Savior fulfilled that promise. So this morning, if you're here, you need to understand how important Jesus is in your life. And as a result of him, you have opportunities to even talk to God and ask things of him. It's Isaiah that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Remember that? And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and we'll call him Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. That's Jesus. So this thing that's happening in 2 Samuel, where he reiterates the Davidic covenant, is all about Jesus. So don't forget him as we go through this. All right, so click back on. So now we're back to the model for God's no. The simple request becomes a sovereign refusal. God says no. Some of you know exactly what I'm speaking of. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. After spending time on your knees in the presence of God, you have asked for a mate, someone to partner with in life. And God has said no. Some of you have found yourself in a job situation and you have fallen on your knees before God and very simply beseeched him for an opportunity for something different and God said, stay. No. Some of you have found yourself in a place and you say, you know what, I would love to be able to move. And on your knees before God, you ask him, can I move? And God says, no. Some of you know exactly what it's like to ask for something, and God said no. Now, unlike David, uh, we don't always get an explanation from God. David got an explanation. God said, I refuse, and then he explained to him why. That doesn't often happen to us. Sometimes God says no, and we're waiting. Or God says no, and we know it, and then we got to figure out, what are we doing next? Well, we find out what he wants next. But, you know, there are reasons why God says no. Oftentimes it's because, as the psalmist said, if I cherish sin in my heart, God doesn't hear me. 
So sometimes it's because of the sin in our heart. We aren't able to communicate with God, and so no wonder he said no. He's, he, he's not even listening to us. James is the one that says to us, you don't have because you don't ask. So some of you, as a result of just not asking, you don't have it. And then James goes on and he says, sometimes you, you, you ask for the wrong reasons. I love the King James word, you ask amiss. Instead of hitting the target of what God wants, you've missed that target with your prayer request. And God has said no. But mainly, the reason why God says no is because he's God. And he has every right to be able to say that. We need to understand that sometimes, sometimes, we have asked for something and God is going to work something else out. You see, we as believers... We don't live on explanations. We live on promises. And the word of God promises us what it is that God will do for us. And we need to invest in those things and pray those things. Alan Redpath, who was a British author, evangelist, and former pastor of Moody Church, he said this, God has more to teach us from his denial than his permission. Three parts of this model on how to handle God's no to your prayer First is the simple request. Part two is the sovereign refusal. Part three is the submissive response. The submissive response. If you're in 2 Samuel 17, you can look at verse 18 and see the submissive response. In verse 17, Nathaniel told it all to David. And after David had heard the words, go for it, he now hears the words, you're not the guy. And his response is, is, is key to this whole thing. Because if you look at verse 18, look what David does. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. I have had two sons go through my home. Two very different sons. And when I told them no, none of them sat down before me <laughs> and said, I love you. <laughs> Neither one of them. The only time they went and sat was because I told them to go sit down. <laughs> Do you see what David does? Instead of dropping down, kicking and screaming, instead of challenging Nathan and his authority and reminding Nathan, I'm the king. I can do this if I choose to do it. David goes into the presence of the Lord and he sat down. He doesn't even stand up before God. He sits down before him. And I would imagine as we go through this, I would imagine that at the end, David is not just sitting down, he has fallen to his knees because he understands who God is so well. Uh, the submissive response begins in verse 18. David went in and sat before the Lord. Uh, there is no sense of resentment. There is no sense of anger. Instead, he sits with the Lord. And it's when we sit with the Lord and see him and allow his light to shine on us, that things change. My wife and I, we, we are empty nesters now. My son graduated from college. He's now self-employed. I like to call it off my payroll. And he is uh, living close, but we have chosen to do some traveling. And one of the things we have done in the summers is we have gone to a variety of different baseball parks. So we, we go to these baseball parks. And whenever we go into the baseball park, one of the things that we do is we take a selfie, we send it to our sons and say, ha ha, spending your inheritance. And that's kind of the way that we do that. 
But I'm, I am not a photographer, and so sometimes when I get out my phone, which I can't find, but anyway, I get out my phone, and I make the mistake of having the sun blocked by my phone, and so it just doesn't look right, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it right. And so there's not a real nice picture. But it's when I turn and allow the sun to shine so that the picture is captured properly, that's when it makes all the difference in the world. And that's what David does. He wants God's light to shine on him in this situation. You've said no, and I need to reaffirm my commitment and love to you, but also I need to remind myself of how marvelous and amazing you are. And so his submissive response includes this. And he says in verse 18, he says, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord? This is very reminiscent of Hannah. Remember Hannah when she went to pray for Samuel, her son? How she said, you know, I don't deserve this, Lord. Falling on her knees and, and just praying and unburdening herself, unloading her heart before God as a subordinate to a superior. That's how she spoke to God. That's what David's doing here. He's going, who, who am I? I was a shepherd boy that you chose and selected and took out of the fields and brought into the kingdom. Who am I? Who am I? And, and seven times he says, thy servant, thy servant, thy servant, thy servant, thy servant. When he goes into the presence of God, he understands. He's speaking to his father. And he wants to show that reverence and that awe of him. He walks into his presence and, and says, I'm your servant. I'm thankful for what you've done for me. I'm thankful for the kingdom that I have. And you saying no, that's not even a part of this discussion. I get it. You're the sovereign. You're the king. You get to say no. Uh, look at verse uh, 19, uh, verse 20. He says, what more can I say? God said no to David. David sat down before the Lord. He began to worship, recognizing God's goodness, grace, love, kindness, and he becomes speechless. What else can I say? Brother Jay, thank you for taking us through worship. We really appreciate it. We love it because what happens in worship when we're singing, we are filling our mind with things about God. And so as a result, we're just repeating what's being sung, and not in a robotic way, but in a worshipful way we're we're caught up in it and as these singers share and as the music plays we get caught up in this and and we get lost in this marvelous sense of what it is that God can do and that's what happens to David we need to find ways don't we we need to find ways so that it's just not on Sunday morning that we have this sense of awe and wonder of God there was a pastor who came and spoke, and he said that, that what he does is that he finds something every day that will remind him that God is purposeful, that God is interested in him. And he'll, he, it doesn't matter what it is. He'll decide it's, if it's carpeting. He'll walk, and he walks on the carpeting, and he kneels down. Thank you, God, for what you've done in my life. Just to remind him to worship. He, he says, on this day, it's going to be a black Mercedes. And whenever I see a black Mercedes, I'm going to thank God. But he, he creates these triggers 
so that he is triggered to worship God, so that it's not just something that he does on Sunday, but that it becomes this pattern of life, this marvelous way of remembering and taking time to sit before God and to get so lost in him that you become speechless. You see, a worshiping heart doesn't try to explain God. A worshiping heart just claims God. A worshiping heart doesn't doesn't try to change God. Notice David isn't playing let's make a deal. Too many times we think Gideon was a hero for the fleece. And remember the fleece? Okay, make it wet, make it dry. Make it dry, make it wet, make it... That's not being a hero. That's showing you don't trust what God's saying. David doesn't do that. David doesn't say, you know what? If I wipe out this many soldiers, then I'll have even more time to build your temple. So let's make a deal, God. No, because a worshiping heart falls into a full understanding of the sovereign God that they are in the presence of, that they are in service to, that they're in an allegiant following manner to. I don't know if this comes to your mind, but as I was sharing this, I thought in my own head, I thought, what about the prayer of importunity in Luke 11? Remember Luke 11? You know, if you're if, if you go to your neighbor's house, you pound on the door, you pound and pound and pound, and what does the neighbor finally do? He relents and gives you the fish. Well, that's, that's, that's if you look, it says that that's not how I am. That's not how our prayer is. That's how some is, but I'm this way. So there are those that want to kick down a door and beat down the door, but that's not how God is. You see, we don't need to get into this competition of trying to wear God down, fatigue him so much that he finally capitulates to my way. It doesn't work that way. Uh, in, instead, what, what's happening here is we're saying, God, you know what's right. And well, you capitulate to that. You say, well, what about Hebrews 4.16? Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews uses the present tense reminding us that this is a privilege we always have. We always have the privilege of being in the presence of God. So please don't think, well, God has said no, so I can't go back. That's not what it's saying. God is saying no to something in your life and then you can continue to be in his presence to talk about your life and what he may have for you beyond it. He says, let us draw near. Draw near. It's like a priest approaching the altar. How do priests approach the altar in the Old Testament? With care, with kindness, with, with gentleness, with a spirit of seeking and hope. There, there, is, there is this sense sometimes that we have to yell at God. We have to Tell him emotionally what we're, that's not necessarily so. I understand sometimes when emotion is a part of our prayer, but that's not how we win God's favor. We win God's favor by understanding that we have come into his presence as a result of what Jesus Christ has done, not as a result of what I have done. And because of what Jesus has done, I can come into his presence. And can you imagine Jesus and God in conversation? They're not yelling and screaming at each other. So why am I yelling and screaming at God? I am a son approaching my father because that's what Jesus is to God. Sharing the nose modeled in the life of David. Uh, he is 
completely in step with God. Look at verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. There is this element of wonder and awe. There is this amazing sense of who God is. And look at verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. There is this element of awe and wonder, but there is also this element of you get all the credit, God. You see, sometimes we forget a worshiping heart wants nothing to do with the credit. A worshiping heart says, you know what? God said, no, I'm fine. Let's move forward to do whatever it is he has for me next. Because sometimes the reason he says no is because he's preparing something better for you. This morning, the model is obvious, isn't it? Someone has said this, Oh, for the spirit of trust that shall never charge God foolishly. Oh, for the spirit of trust that when God says no, I rest in that. But you don't understand, it's a great request, what I'm asking of God. (laughs) Who knows better than he knows? No one. It is God that knows the most. First Chronicles 29, uh, 29, verse 2, we find out that David did not build the temple, but he prepared for the temple. He made it so that when Solomon comes along and builds the temple, everything's all set. You know, it's kind of funny. In, in, in uh, 2 Samuel 7, David said, you know, I'm, I'm, I really have a lot of extra time. So I could build this temple. And then if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 8, he's fighting the Philistines and the Moabites. (laughs) He didn't know. God knew. David didn't understand, but God did. So God said no to David's request. And sometimes God says no because he's got something better. Got something more for us to have, to experience. The first time I came here, and I'm sorry for those of you that have to endure this again, but the first time I came here, I spoke, and at the conclusion of the sermon, someone came up to me and said, you didn't say anything about our pastor. Surely you've got something on the guy. Surely you could share something. And so I've I've made it a point to, you know, to have a Pastor Eric moment. And that time has arrived. Your pastor and I were scheduled to go to the Philippines in the summer and play basketball together. I had gone the summer before, great time. It's, it's, it's five weeks, that our, our missions trip used to be uh, five weeks in the summer. We would play between 25 and 30 basketball games in that five weeks and we would be in the Philippines and we would use all different sorts of transportation and go to places and it's just a wonderful time and God moves marvelously. And so I wanted that for Eric. And Eric said, yes, I want to do that too. And so Eric said, he made the plan. We're going to go. We got our missionary letters together and we were going to send it off. I think if I remember right, it was like $1,500. And we were going to send out missionary letters to see if people would help us pay. So I'm all excited and ready to go. And I'm sitting in our room and Eric comes into our room. And he, he's very sober, very quiet. And I said, what's going on? He goes, Bake, i got to tell you something. He said, I'm not going to the Philippines. I said, why? I said, what happened? What's going on? He said, I've been invited by the NAIA to represent them in Australia with a collection of NAIA all-stars. 
Now, think about black and white TV, that's the Philippines. Going to Australia, that's a color TV. <laughs> the opportunity was just limitless. And for him to be able to go there and share, um, it was just a marvelous thing. And I, I said, that's great, that's wonderful. I can, I, you know, I'm sad we're not going to be together, but it's going to be awesome. He goes to Australia with all these NAI All-Stars. He's going from Cedarville, which obviously uh, we had had a very successful season. He had played great. He was a great player. But it's still Cedarville. Not a lot of people know about it. He goes there and he gets there. And, you know, we had prayed. God, use Eric. You know, whatever it is you ask for him. Eric gets there. And when he arrives, they have a couple of practices. And when the first game is played, he is designated the manager. He's not even going to play. And he has, and, and I don't know if he still has it, but when he came back, he showed me, he has a picture, and it has everyone's name underneath it, you know, of the guys that are playing, and it has Eric Mount's MGR. Now imagine that. He could have been in the Philippines with us playing every second. He's in Australia with all of these all-stars. Great opportunity. And God said, you know what? I want you to have a seat on the bench and be the manager. Now we know Eric. And Eric was probably the greatest manager those guys had ever seen in their life, right? I mean, they never lacked for a drink of water. They never lacked for a, a, a towel to dry off on. And, and it was so amazing. As, as he stayed, he continued to practice with the team. He continued to work with them. They continued to play. They had a great uh, Australian experience. They won some games. They, they took a tournament. And when Eric came back, he's sharing with me. He's telling me about the story. And he showed me the one lineup card where it said, Eric Mount's MGR. And then at the end of the tournament, he showed me the card, and it had Eric Mount's MVP because he had stayed the course. God said, no, I want you to take a seat, and I want you to experience something different. And he stayed with it and understood God's plan, and at the end, God rewarded him for his faithfulness. That's what he's asking of you today, to be reminded that he is a sovereign God who has a wonderful plan that you may not like, but it is best for you because he knows best. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be able to share your word. But Lord, thank you most of all that you took time to give us your word and to outline for us who you are so that we can trust you and rely upon you and know you better, so that when the no's come, we're able to handle them for the glory of your name. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.